The following podcast contains adult themes and is suitable for mature audiences only. Hello and welcome to Lyrics of Their Life, the podcast that talks about the extraordinary lives lived by those that wrote or performed the songs we know and love. I'm your host Adam Hampton and in today's episode we'll be exploring the life and music of Robin Fab, aka Millie Vanilli. Known today as one of the biggest scandals in all of pop music history, with the help of group founder Frank Farian, the duo of Rob Pilatus and Fab Morvan managed to fool the world by lip-syncing the huge hits Blame It On The Rain, Girl You Know It's True, Baby Don't Forget My Number, and Girl I'm Gonna Miss You. For many, these songs were romantic ballads that brought couples together and had ladies drooling over Rob and Fab's exotic looks, but the truth was, they were just the face of the act and weren't actually singing on any of their records. Instead, they were being voiced by completely different singers, hidden away in the background, where no one could suspect anything. After a number of slip-ups, rising tensions, and a Grammy win, their secret was eventually revealed to the world, where their fans turned on them, going as far as steamrolling their albums, as Robin Fab struggled to reclaim their identity and deal with what they had taken part in, and the hopes of young fans they had crushed. But what was life like for the pair growing up? Where did they come from? How did they become a part of this scheme? Was it all they're doing? What consequences would lie ahead for Robin Fab? And where are they now? This is the story of Millie Vanilli. This is Lyrics of Their Life. We begin our story with Fab Morvan, who was born Fabrice Morvan on the 14th of May 1966 in Paris, France. His father was an architect who also served in the armed forces while his mother worked as a pharmacist, with the pair originally moving from their home in the French-owned territory in the South Caribbean islands of Guadeloupe. Fabrice was nicknamed Fab and remembers growing up in a multicultural society in Paris. Fab described the city as beautiful, but also gloomy with ugly weather and harsh winters. But due to these severe weather conditions, it would force Fab and his family to stay home indoors where they would listen to music together. When speaking with Patrick Bet David in an interview, Fab described his favourite thing to do was listening to music and described it as magical, especially when observing his parents and the way it would make them act almost childlike, happy and was a positive memory for him growing up. Fab says, as early as he can remember, he was engaged in listening to music and grew up listening to funk, soul, hip-hop and pop, where he enjoyed the music of the Beatles, Bob Marley, Michael Jackson and the Jackson 5, Earth, Wind and Fire, Cool and the Gang, James Brown, Queen, Run DMC, Stevie Wonder and Aretha Franklin. Fab also loved to dance to these artists and for him dance was a great form of expression. Fab would often head down to the record store and was especially interested in the lyrics and meaning behind songs that would often be found in record booklets and on the back. 
Using the dictionary, he would work out music terms he didn't understand, and was fascinated by how many people work on a record, from the production team to songwriting and so on. As Fab became a teenager, he played soccer and was also an aspiring athlete. Fab was especially talented at acrobatic or gymnastic trampolining, with many believing he could have gone far in the sport. That was until one particular day where Fab landed awkwardly and badly broke his neck. Nervous about returning to the sport once he recovered, Fab decided to focus on his love of dance and music, and this was especially helped along by his grandfather, who was a fisherman who lived in the Caribbean, but also had musical roots, as he played the accordion and was in a band of his own. Fab described himself as an introvert who loved art and painting and often found himself reading in the library. Living in Paris, art was strongly encouraged and Fab and his classmates would often be taken on school excursions to art museums. He was a good student who didn't have much luck with the ladies at the time until he was older. Fab was great at maths despite explaining that his maths teacher was a jerk and at times turned him off learning the subject. Fab was interested in archaeology, especially in relation to the Incas, and believed if he never found music or dance, that he may have went down a science career path. During his teen years, Fab was enrolled in a dance school where he was able to hone his skills and become a highly skilled dancer. Speaking with DJ Vlad in an interview, Fab expressed that music was always in his heart. He enjoyed dancing to music and the movement involved in expressive dance and combining music and dance followed by singing simultaneously. It was through this that Fab knew exactly what he wanted to do with his life. When Fab turned 18, he moved to Germany with his mother and some friends after his parents had decided to get a divorce, where Fab would head out to dancing clubs and take up some modelling jobs. Fab struggled with learning the local language despite knowing some German after studying the language at school for two years, but decided to refresh his skills by studying the language at a library. Despite learning a basic German vocabulary, he still struggled to understand what others were saying most of the time. On one fateful night in a nightclub in Munich, Fab crossed paths with a young man by the name of Rob Pilatus, who was also a dancer on the club scene, and the two over time became good friends. Rob Politis' upbringing, on the other hand, was quite the opposite to Fab, as he had a very rocky and sad start to life. While some say he was born in 1964, most reports say he was born Robert Politis on the 8th of June 1965 in New York City, USA. His father was an African-American soldier who served in the US military, but Rob would later state that he never had the chance to meet his biological father. Rob's mother was a white or Caucasian German woman who worked as an adult entertainer and stripper. She had been travelling in the US when she met Rob's father and returned to Munich, Germany with a newborn baby and as a single mother. It's believed that Rob's mother struggled to cope and afford to look after Rob and decided to put Rob up for adoption. Rob was taken to an orphanage in the state of Bavaria located near Munich in Germany, where he would spend four years in the orphanage and in between foster homes before being adopted by a Caucasian family who resided in Munich. His foster father worked as a physician and together with his wife they had another daughter named Carmen, who was also adopted. During his schooling years, Rob faced a lot of hurdles including being the only student with darker skin and was often bullied about his appearance, as he was met with racist remarks on the daily for many years. Rob struggled in school, he was often in trouble for behavioural issues and described himself as an outsider and an outcast. 
Rob was even called Kanta Kinti by his classmates, which was the name of an African hero who rose from poor beginnings and slavery in the TV miniseries called Roots because of his African background. Rob struggled immensely with this and later told the LA Times, Imagine being black without a black community anywhere. When you're young, you need something to identify with, and I didn't have it. I'm black, and I'm German, but I had no way to learn what being black means. Nobody was keeping me away from black people, there just aren't many in Germany. Without anything to identify with, you grow up thinking maybe you're different, and maybe not as good as everybody else. They called me Kuntakinti, that hurt. They saw me as different. When you're young, you don't like to feel different. If you're different, you feel alone. Rob would often get beat up by the other kids in his early schooling years, and also struggled to be raised in a predominantly white family, often feeling like an outcast in his family life also. Over time, however, Rob became bigger and stronger and learnt to fend for himself. When speaking to DJ Vlad in an interview, Fab recalls a motto that Rob would live by, saying, It's better to be feared than loved. Rob would get into many fights during his schooling years and began to stand up to the bullies. Struggling with low self-esteem and struggling to feel accepted in his own skin, music and dance would pull Rob through life and would free him from his past and present torments. Like many including Fab, music and dance was an outlet for expression and happiness. At age 14, Rob started running away from home and began venturing into clubs despite being underage. He believes around the age of 16, people started becoming more accepting of the colour of his skin and was seen as cool, thanks to his favourite rising pop stars at the time being successful coloured musicians. Rob was inspired by the likes of Prince and Michael Jackson growing up and wanted to show Germany that he too could make it and break down those racial barriers. When Rob turned 18, he moved out of his adoptive home and worked incredibly hard to make something of himself. As he began breakdancing in nightclubs, he did some DJing, modelling, performing with a band called DuPont, and he landed some small roles as a backing singer. Rob was a very talented dancer, becoming known as a champion breakdancer on the club scene, winning many competitions, and built a solid reputation. This eventually earned him performance slots on TV shows, while his modelling career was also promising as he possessed an exotic model look. In 1984 at age 19, Rob travelled to New York for an international breakdancing competition that he had earned an invite to. While on this trip, he ventured to LA, where he believes he met Fab Morvan for the first time in a disco club for a dance seminar, and he believes they both instantly clicked. The two went their separate ways, however, and wouldn't cross paths again until years later. While Rob believed this was their first encounter, Fab believes it was in fact in Munich, Germany. In 1987, at 22 years old, Rob was assigned to the music group called Wind, and performed as their backing singer and guitarist on a number of German TV appearances. With the group Wind, he even performed at the Eurovision Song Contest held in Brussels, dressed in a bright, all-yellow mid-80s attire, which was far from the look Rob would usually go with. Wind managed to come second that year, and gave Rob a lot of confidence despite just being a backing singer. Rob then landed a brief appearance as an actor in a German drama series, but felt acting wasn't for him. Rob continued to hit the club scene with his breakdancing talents, and that's when he first met Fab Morvan. Fab first saw Rob breakdancing at a party and realised straight away that he was very talented, but Rob didn't notice Fab just yet. Just a few days later, Fab ran into Rob for the very first time. Fab felt at times like he was imposing on Rob's turf, 
in regards to dancing in the same clubs, and both being in the very small minority of black men in a predominantly white German city. As they continued to cross paths, it became like a competition, and they even happened to be attracted to and date the same women time and time again. Over time, their rivalry turned into a mutual respect, and eventually, a friendship. They started hanging out together, and discovered they had loads in common, such as a love and passion for dance and music, and they became inseparable, like brothers. Both Rob and Fab spoke in broken English, as they had both learned the English language in school, and while their English wasn't the best as they had strong German and French accents, they felt they could understand each other quite well. Deciding they had a good yin and yang type chemistry, they decided they should collaborate and aim to achieve success in the industry together. Both men had that exotic model and star look about them. Rob was seen as the outgoing, loud and outspoken type, while Fab was more reserved, soft-spoken and shy out of the two, but together they blended perfectly. Robert and Fabrice gave themselves the stage names Rob and Fab and started out by performing as high-energy dancers in clubs in Munich, especially in one particular club called the Pians, which, believe it or not, was actually located inside the famous Haus de Kunst Museum in Munich. Rob and Fab performed for the very first time here, and the club at the time was very popular, despite being classified as small and could only hold up to 400 people if they all crammed right in. In an interview with Patrick Bet David, Fab explained how he always ran into stars who enjoyed their performances and saw Bono of U2, Whitney Houston and Charlie Wilson of the Gap Band pass through there and that it was a happening place to be. As Rob and Fab continued to perform, they started getting their name out there, performing for mostly rich and wealthy audience members at the Pians as they built a small following and positive reaction from the clubgoers. They became regulars at the Pians and were renowned for their incredible dance moves and high energy performances to a range of music that got everyone up and dancing and having a good time. Rob and Fab were natural entertainers and over time they incorporated singing covers of the Beatles, rock and roll and soul music into their performances and realised that that was more the direction they wanted to go in. Rob and Fab soon renamed their stage name to Empire Bazaar and were briefly signed to a Minnow German label releasing a three-track maxi single called Dan Says, but it only sold a few thousand copies. After this, Rob and Fab soon found themselves landing a role as studio backing vocalists for a range of musicians at renowned German producer Frank Farian's state-of-the-art Frankfurt studio. Fab stated that at the time he didn't know Frank was the man behind Boney M and how big he actually had been. To keep the money flowing in to support their dream, Rob and Fab worked as models and were involved in shoots for catalogues and runway shows. Fab even performed a gig in Bavaria as a Michael Jackson impersonator as they did anything to keep the dream alive. They were often so low on funds and struggled most of the time to pay for everyday items and essentials. Through the studio musicians Rob and Fab had sung backing vocals for, German producer Frank Farian soon became aware of them and noticed their potential. Once a trained cook, Frank Farian entered the music industry in the late 60s with a single of his own called Will You Ever Be Mine, but the track wasn't successful and Frank continually struggled to get his name out there. His biggest success came in the form of disco, reggae and R&B group from West Germany called Boney M that he himself had put together. Before fooling the world with Millie Vanilli, this was Frank's first shot at tricking the listener by having his very own vocals be included on the album alongside the three female vocalists and he had the one and only male member of the group, Bobby Farrell, pretend to sing them. 
This way Frank could hide his image that seemingly wasn't interesting to the public. He could still have his voice on a record, and instead he could have Bobby Farrell, who was a fantastic flamboyant high-energy on-stage performer, in his place lip-syncing to his parts. Boney M went on to sell between 80 to an estimated 100 million albums, making Frank a very happy and successful man. Eventually in 1981, Bobby Farrell and Frank Farian butted heads when Bobby became unreliable and he requested to sing on their next few albums and Frank declined. Bobby was then fired and replaced and Boney M failed to have many more hits after this. While the truth emerged about the lip syncing on the albums, it was quickly forgotten about and wasn't taken as seriously as the later Millie Vanilli scandal. However, Bobby Farrell was often given a hard time due to this. Frank also worked with the likes of Meatloaf and created the Far Corporation, made up mainly of Toto members, while his personal studio that he bought through the success of Boney M was full of state-of-the-art equipment and used by Terence Trent D'Arby and Stevie Wonder. After Boney M's success, Frank Farian found Robin Fab and decided why not try to repeat this winning formula that worked so well with Boney M. Frank had most likely noticed Robin Fab working in his studio, but also through their names being brought up on the club scene, and asked them to come to his office in his lavish studio, surrounded by impressive golden records located in Frankfurt, Germany, the same place they had been supplying studio backing vocals for. It was here that Robin Fab met Frank for the very first time, and while it was brief as Frank was quite busy, Robin Fab must have made a great impression to be invited back for another meeting not too long after. Fab spoke very little German and had trouble understanding the language, so Rob did most of the talking and translating, and Fab attempted to grasp what he was saying through body language, something he learnt to help him understand both German and English initially. After their meeting, Rob and Fab returned to performing in Munich and some time passed before they heard back from Frank's executives that he would like to meet for a third time at his studio office in Frankfurt. During the time that Rob and Fab returned to the studio for the meeting, Frank had been working on a master plan that involved the two of them. At this next meeting, Rob and Fab brought with them some of their own demo tape recordings, thinking they would have a chance to show him what they had to offer. But Frank didn't seem interested at all, and in Fab's opinion, he would never give them the chance to show him their real voices the whole time they knew him. Frank then played Rob and Fab a demo instrumental track titled, Girl You Know It's True. What Rob and Fab didn't know at the time was that Frank had muted the original vocals on the recording from an American group called New Marks, who had released the song to little success in the US, but they had a small hit with the song in Germany, as it was often played at American-style clubs in Germany, a place Frank liked to go to hear the latest music coming from the States and incorporate that into his own work. Thinking the song was an original and was yet to include lyrics, Frank asked their opinion of the song. They both loved the sound of the song, with its dance pop beat, and Fab said he could imagine himself singing to it. Despite Fab saying that Frank never acknowledged their real voices, according to Frank Farian, Rob and Fab both willingly agreed and stepped into the recording booth, but he wasn't impressed by their voices and thought they were lacking. As he said, these two guys came into the studio, they recorded, but they didn't have enough quality. Frank decided he liked the pop star look and dancing ability of Rob and Fab, and that they would instead be better as the face for the project, and would once again hire some studio vocalists to do the vocals. But he kept all this extremely quiet, with only very few being let in on the secret. Rob and Fab believe that Frank told them they would be singing on the album, and that he promised to make them millions. They were totally oblivious to what he was about to pull. 
when Rob now aged 23 and Fab aged 22 were given a contract by Frank Farian. They were overly excited, overwhelmed and trusting with no personal managers or attorneys assigned to assist them in the negotiations. They were left to make all the decisions themselves and skipped over the clauses and crucial finer details in their contract and signed their first major record deal to MCI Records on the 1st of January 1988. The contract included a total of three albums to be recorded, with at least 10 songs guaranteed per year. Rob and Fab signed the deal and received an advance payment, which he estimated to be around 1000 to 1500 US dollars each. It was not a lot, but to them it was enough to buy some clothes and keep their hair looking the part. They weren't about to start complaining, being rookies to the music business, and they were just happy at the prospect of going somewhere. The recording process began for their first album, but what Rob and Fab weren't aware of was that he had studio musicians named Charles Shaw, John Davis, Brad Howell, and female backing singers Jody and Linda Rocco working away in four separate studio rooms, recording the vocals for the album instead. According to Fab, Frank had organised for the studio musicians and Rob and Fab to come into the studio at different times, so they never crossed paths. Fab believes that he kept calling and asking when they were needed for recording, but Frank kept saying they weren't needed just yet, and told them to just focus on promoting themselves first. During these few months of recording, Rob and Fab began getting paid. It wasn't a whole lot of money, but was just enough to keep them busy. They were getting paid to basically stay away from the studio, and to start to look the part of a pop star. They weren't aware that they were actually not having any part of the recording or creative process, and that Frank had it all planned out perfectly. In this month or so, Rob and Fab began practicing their songs, working on dance routines, and with the money that was coming in, they bought new clothes and went and had their hair glammed up. Previously, they both had short hair, but after deciding together that they needed something that would make them stand out from the rest, and seeing a documentary on some of the greatest musicians and actors of all time, such as Bob Marley, Elvis Presley, and Marilyn Monroe, they realised that all the greats had interesting hair, so Rob and Fab decided to utilise hair extensions and eventually would grow long black hair and had it braided. The new look made Rob and Fab distinctive, especially when their careers kicked off, and Fab believes it was a huge hit with the ladies. During this time, Fab ran into studio vocalist Brad Howell and realised that he must have something to do with the recording process. This was the only time Fab or Rob would ever meet one of the real singers before the truth was exposed, and they were kept separate from communicating with one another from here on out. Despite all of this, Rob and Fab were having the time of their lives, and it was the happiest they would be in their time with Millie Vanilli. This however all changed and the mood soon turned dark, and of anger, once Frank's plan was revealed. Frank finally broke the news to Rob and Fab once the album was near completion, and as he spoke German, he called Rob over to break the news to him. Fab, who could only just make out some words in German, began to get the gist of what he was saying, especially when Rob started getting fired up, as he told them they would just be lip-syncing on both the album and live, and would be just the face and stars of the show. Frank then stormed out of the room, leaving Rob and Fab furious when they discovered they wouldn't be singing on the tracks. They both genuinely wanted to sing and were devastated by the news. They followed Frank into the next room, stood their ground and told him that they wouldn't do it and returned to their hotel where Rob and Fab discussed what to do next. They received a phone call from Frank Farian's associates and were asked to come back. Rob and Fab agreed to come back down to the studio and discuss the matter with tensions rising at this point. 
Fab believes they were told, quote, it's okay if you don't want to do it, but you need to pay us back. While Rob and Fab had been getting paid, they hadn't nearly enough to pay Frank back for taking up his time, and unfortunately they were under an agreement in their contract. The money they were required to pay back was every cent they had been living off and using to improve their pop star look since signing the contract, which was all paid for by Frank. Fab stated that they thought they could get a job and do some shows, but they wondered how they were going to come up with enough money to pay him back, and they hated the idea of owing someone money. They returned to their hotel once again, before coming to an agreement. Feeling like they had no choice, and getting the impression that they could walk away once they had made up the money they owed through performing Girl You Know It's True, Rob and Fab finally agreed to lip sync, but had no idea just how big they were about to become, how seductive the life of fame would become, and that they would soon be stuck in a web of lies with no turning back. After Rob and Fab accepted to go along with the lip-syncing and having little creative control, they were however a part of naming the duo and came up with the name Millie Vanilli. While many rumours linked the name to a range of strange stories, such as an advertisement that the pair saw on a trip to Turkey, that it derives from the name of a defunct disco club in Berlin, or that the word means positive energy in Turkish, when speaking to DJ Vlad, Fab Morvan says that the idea came from a British group from the 80s that they loved, called Screedy Politi. They then thought of vanilla ice cream and a woman that Rob once worked for, named Millie, and then came up with Millie Vanilli, as it sounded like it represented the names of the two performers. Rob and Fab, now going by the name Millie Vanilli, filmed a short video for Girl You Know It's True, specifically for German TV to test the waters, if they were going to be a hit, which they were instantly. Millie Vanilli was sent by Frank Farian on a tour during May 1988 around Europe. They recorded the parts of Girl You Know It's True music video in London and Munich and started impressing audiences in Spain, France and Italy. Little did the crowd know that they were in fact lip-syncing to pre-recorded vocal tracks and were just providing their dancing and performance skills. Dressed in shoulder padded suits, high boots, spandex shorts, and sporting their six packs and long braided hair, Millie Vanilli were fast becoming the hottest act on the club scene and were a massive hit with the ladies. While Rob and Fab had no trouble attracting women beforehand, they were now being swarmed by them as they began to get wrapped up in the party lifestyle. Men wanted to be them, and the women wanted to be with them, as they would scream, cry, and plaster their posters all over their walls. When they ventured back to Germany, Rob asked Frank if they would get to do their own music soon, but Frank reportedly just kept stringing them both along and saying, it will come. Despite not being the vocalists, Rob and Fab worked extremely hard on their dance moves and lip-syncing training, which required hours upon hours of practice and choreography. On the 25th of June 1988, Millie Vanilli's version of Girl You Know It's True was released to the world, and Rob and Fab's lives would ultimately never be the same again. The song first of all peaked at number one in Germany, and was followed by Austria, Greece, Spain, and the US Billboard dance sales chart. But what was even more compelling was that it reached number two in the US, and three in the UK on their mainstream charts, and making the top five in ten other countries, including Canada and Fab's home country of France. In the US alone, it eventually sold two million copies, and close to four million worldwide. On their debut single, Millie Vanilli had broken into the mainstream in the US, which was a huge achievement, but then the realisation set in that this project wasn't about to be discarded for Rob and Fab's sake, as there was simply too much money involved. 
A memorable music video was released onto MTV, with Robin Fab seen showing off their unique dance moves and captivating audiences around the world. MTV proved to be a great tool in driving Millie Vanilli's success and was used brilliantly to make them MTV megastars. During November 1988, Millie Vanilli's debut album, titled All or Nothing, was released through the German label Hansa Records to Europe and the UK only, and was later repackaged for the US and Canada, titled Girl You Know It's True, the following year in March, was released through the American label Arista Records. Frank Farian had a hand in writing most of the material, with no crediting whatsoever going to Fab or Rob. The European version of the album peaked at number 3 in Austria, 4 in Germany, and 5 in Switzerland, and went platinum in the Netherlands. When the repackaged album was released to the US and Canada in March 1989, the album peaked at number 1 in both countries, and sold close to 7 million copies in the US, going 6 times platinum, and selling 1 million in Canada, where it went diamond. The All or Nothing album was once again released to Australia and New Zealand as a US remixed album and managed to chart at number one in both countries. According to Fab Morvan's estimation, the album over time would sell close to 14 million copies and 33 million singles. Despite their success, critics labelled their music as lightweight, lacking depth and bland, but millions of fans around the world obviously thought otherwise. With their huge success came loads of interviews and TV appearances, and Robin Fab's strong German and French accents often shone through, which made some question how on earth they sang so well, and clearly in English. But this was quickly played off, and became acceptable that they were legitimate rather quickly, as the world continued to fall in love with Robin Fab, aka Millie Vanilli. As they got bigger and bigger, it became harder for Rob and Fab to get out of their contract, and by this stage, the life of the pop star was simply too good to refuse. While still planning on their way of exiting Millie Vanilli, Rob and Fab began to enjoy the life of fame, as they previously had little in life and had to work for everything. Now it was all coming to them quite easily. Despite not being the singers, they were living their childhood dreams as pop stars. They were partying and sleeping with loads of women, and had access to basically whatever they wanted, including hotels, room service, they were riding in limousines, they could get into any club they wanted, including VIP sections, they could travel all around the world, could trash their hotel room, and party if they wanted to, and they could get away with it all, just like the rock stars and the stories they had heard growing up. They went from having hardly any income at all, to making millions. They were reported to have been spending as much as $60,000 a month and were now on heavy rotation on MTV and were loved by everyone everywhere they went. They are said to have even spent around $60,000 on a party, blowing it in just the one week. The hardest time Fab recalls, however, in his interview with DJ Vlad, were when everyone leaves after a party and reality sets in and it becomes lonely and ugly. On the 10th of December 1988, Millie Vanilli released their second single, titled Baby Don't Forget My Number. And while the song didn't get released until April in the US, yet again their sales proved that Americans loved the high-energy track, which saw it rise to number one on the US Billboard Hot 100 chart. It also made the top ten in seven other countries, including Spain, West Germany, and Canada. Rob and Fab would later express their feelings of being naive, and at times even stupid, as in their minds, they just kept thinking that they would get their chance eventually to sing their own vocals and put trust in Frank. While they loved performing, they felt they were only getting the chance to live half the life of a pop star and badly wanted to sing. 
It was around this time that Rob and Fab realised Frank never intended, nor would he ever let them sing their own vocals, while being a part of Millie Vanilli at least. Rob was quoted as saying, After Frank released the album, he told us that it was too late to stop now. Because the single was such a big success, now you have to go through with it. I'll cover you guys, nobody will find out. He said here I'll give you 20,000 advance money. We never had a hit before so we went along with it. We played with fire and now we know, but it's too late. One thing that often plagued Robin Fab's mind was the guilt of fooling their fans, something that would one day, very soon, come back to haunt them. On the 1st of July 1989, Millie Vanilli released the pop ballad titled Girl I'm Gonna Miss You. The song of course was once again lip-synced by Robin Fab and became a huge success worldwide, going to number one in the US, Canada and four other European countries, and made the top five in eight other countries, including the UK, and was their first ever hit in Australia. This was closely followed by the release of Blame It On The Rain, which was released on the 13th of July, and was only included on the US version of the album. Blame It On The Rain would peak at number one in the US once again. It remained there for two weeks and became the duo's third number one there and totaled 23 weeks on the US Hot 100 and charted inside the top five in a further five countries including Australia, New Zealand and Canada. Fab described this time as appearing happy from a fan's point of view looking in but personally he felt they were very unhappy, stressed and dysfunctional. They were feeling the pressure of carrying around a secret that they weren't allowed to share with anyone on the outside. This made it hard to get close to anyone and made the pair feel quite lonely. Fab told DJ Vlad in his interview, in order to cope with the busy touring schedule and the pressure, they found themselves getting involved with drugs and alcohol, despite not regularly partaking in that sort of behaviour before Millie Vanilli. Some of these drugs included cocaine, marijuana, a lot of booze, and basically experimenting with every drug one can think of, and it became their form of escape from the hectic lifestyle they were living. Millie Vanilli went out touring around the US and took to the road on the MTV tour. They became renowned for pulling a female fan onto stage and seductively kissing them in front of the audience as part of their act. Rumours began circulating once again about the duo potentially lip-syncing in relation to their thick European accents and their English singing voices. But on the 21st of July 1989, at the Lake Compounds theme park in Bristol, Connecticut, the first major telltale sign that Robin Fab might have been lip-syncing became apparent while mid-performance on the track Girl You Know It's True. As Rob's line came around, the backing track on the hard drive playing the song backstage began to skip and the line Girl You Know It's True began repeating itself and skipping, saying Girl You Know It's, Girl You Know It's and kept repeating itself over and over approximately 15 times. It was also loud and clear through the speakers for all the 80,000 fans in the crowd to hear. An embarrassed Rob couldn't pretend like it was part of the show and he ran off stage announcing that he quits as Fab followed him to see what was going on. As Rob told VH1's Behind the Music, I knew right then and there it was the beginning of the end for Millie Vanilli. When my voice got stuck in the computer and it just kept repeating and repeating, I panicked. I didn't know what to do. I just ran off the stage. Stage manager Julie Brown told VH1, with a bit of pushing and screaming and a couple of F-words, I got them back out there. Julie Brown and later Fab believed that the crowd didn't seem to care so much and carried on enjoying the rest of the show, as skipping was something they occasionally included in their shows anyway. 
but it was instead the rumours that came after the show when word got out of what had transpired that evening. Despite that mishap, the majority of fans continued buying records and coming to shows, and seemingly it didn't have an effect as fans wanted to believe it was them singing on the album. Critics, however, didn't let up and continually spread rumours and questioned them. Rob and Fab knew it was just a matter of time before the truth was revealed, so paranoia started to set in, and they feared that the success of their album and singles would lead them to winning major awards in the coming new year, which would ultimately put them in the spotlight and perhaps leak the truth. Before it was too late, they attempted to exit the group numerous times and felt like prisoners, but they had well and truly gone too far, and there was no turning back. We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Hi everyone, and sorry to interrupt. I hope you're enjoying this episode, but I just wanted to take this opportunity to tell you four ways on how you can support the podcast and play your part in keeping it going so I can continue to bring you more great episodes. If you enjoy Lyrics of Their Life podcast, first of all, it would be greatly appreciated if you could subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. It's totally free to do. It just means that you will receive a notification when a new episode of the podcast becomes available. Secondly, you can leave the podcast a positive five-star review on iTunes as this helps the podcast reach a larger audience. Third of all, you can tell your friends all about the podcast or join us on our social media pages at Facebook, Instagram, TikTok and Twitter. While finally, you can take your support one step further and head to our Patreon page and pledge your support to one of two of our plans for just $1 or $5 per month with no locking contract. Or you can pledge just a one-off payment for all the hard work that goes into creating the podcast. And you will receive a number of extra benefits to go with your donation. Or you can even buy me a beer for $5 at buymeacoffee.com forward slash lyrics of life pod. I am a totally independent podcast creator, meaning there are no large networks or businesses financially supporting my work. So your support would be greatly appreciated as it means I can continue creating more content such as biographies, the weekly muse, interviews and more as it takes a lot of time, resources and research to prepare and upload just one single episode. Links to Patreon and Buy Me A Coffee can be found in the show notes on our website at lyricsoftheirlife.com or on our Facebook page. Once again, I appreciate every one of my listeners for their support, no matter the form it comes in. Thanks for listening. Now let's get back to the episode. During December 1989, it was reported that former studio singer and rapper Charles Shaw, who rapped Fab's parts, had told a reporter that Rob and Fab were imposters and not the true vocalists on their album, and that it was in fact himself and a number of other vocalists. While it was never confirmed, it's believed Frank Farian paid Charles a large sum of money to retract his comments. But ultimately, it was too late and further rumours began circulating. Shaw was then quietly let go when he started opening his mouth too much in the early stages of Millie Vanilli and was replaced by John Davis shortly after recording Girl You Know It's True. The 20th of January 1990 would ultimately mark Millie Vanilli's final single to be released before the truth was finally exposed. The single, All or Nothing, peaked at number one in New Zealand and number four in the US. Just two days later, on the 22nd of January 1989, Millie Vanilli would take part in their first prestigious awards show at the AMAs held in LA. 
Millie Vanilli were up for four awards that night, were attempting to keep a low profile. But as the night went on, Millie Vanilli ended up taking home three awards, including Favourite Pop Rock Song, For Girl You Know It's True, Favourite Pop Rock New Artist, Favourite Soul and R&B Artist, and were just beaten to the award for Favourite Pop Duo, Rock Band, or Group by New Kids on the Block. Very quickly, all eyes were on Robin Fab, the now award-winning duo, as Fab described the moment as exciting, but once you touch those awards, it becomes real, and it's like a ticking time bomb, waiting to blow up in your face. Just the next month, on February 21st, 1990, Millie Vanilli attended the Pinnacle of Music Awards Ceremonies at the 32nd Annual Grammy Awards, held in LA. Millie Vanilli performed Girl You Know It's True on the night, with all the biggest names in music watching on in the audience. They performed a high-energy performance as usual, but at times it was obvious that they were lip-syncing, with Fab occasionally pulling the mic away from his mouth when the vocals were heard. When one of the most prestigious award categories, the Best New Artist, rolled around, Millie Vanilli sat anxiously as the nominees were read out. As Rob and Fab kept saying to themselves, please don't be us. All night the camera had been panning onto them, and they had been seated in the front row, suggesting they may well be in line to win the award. Millie Vanilli were simply too big for their own good, and were announced as the winners for Best New Artist, as a nervous, worried and almost reluctant Robin Fab made their way up to accept the award. Rob then made a speech that would turn out to be quite contradicting in the end, as he also hinted at their secret. Here is that moment now. And the Best New Artist is... Millie Vanilli. Uh, we want to say thank you very much, but we want to say there are a lot of artists here in this room, there are a lot of artists outside in the world who can achieve the same award that we achieved today, and it's an award for all artists in the world. Thank you very much. Thank you. Millie Vanilli had won the award, beating the Indigo Girls, Nina Cherry, Tone Locke, and Soul to Soul for the award. Millie Vanilli would party with the other award nominees and winners at the Grammy after party, but due to the worry and guilt, they got wasted on drugs and alcohol to numb the feeling. Winning the award brought about a lot of unwanted attention. As they left the auditorium that night, Millie Vanilli would be bombarded with rumours and criticism from journalists and critics questioning the credibility of their music and if they were in fact just lip syncing. As the truth threatened to rear its ugly head, Fab and Rob felt tremendous guilt and shame. Rob fell into a bad spiral with drugs and was beginning to act out by saying outrageous comments such as, I'm the new Elvis, and that he believed Millie Vanilli were more talented musically than Bob Dylan, Mick Jagger, and Paul McCartney. But Fab believes this statement was conscrewed by the journalist, that Rob had been drinking and smoking pot that night before the interview, and due to Rob struggling with the English language, he often confuses with what he really wanted to say. Fab believes he meant to refer to them as the connection they had built with their fans and how big they had become. On the 21st of April 1990, a skit by Comical Show in Living Colour was one of the first to poke fun of the duo on TV. This worried Robin Fab as people were starting to really catch on about the lip syncing. I want to be Vanilli. No, you can't be Vanilli. I am always Vanilli. No, but you can't be Vanilli two days straight. Why not? Because you are Germany and I'm from French. Oh, now I get it. Makes sense Makes to sense. me. Millie Vanilli commercial, take one. Hello, we are Millie Vanilli. 
You know, a lot of people don't understand the enormous success of Mili Vanilli. And neither do we. <laughs> but we are here today to tell you that you too can be Mili Vanilli with lots of positive energy and our new do-it-yourself at home, Mili Vanilli Kid. Act now because we are almost out of style. <laughs> After touring the US and Europe, Millie Vanilli toured Africa, visiting the locals, and was shocked to find out that they were household names everywhere they went in the country, and had touched the lives of so many so far away. Millie Vanilli also ventured to Australia, where they appeared on a range of TV shows for interviews, and segments such as the Today Show, and the classic comical family show, Hey Hey It's Saturday, where they took part as judges in the popular segment, called Red Faces. It was clear from the body language in their interviews that it was getting harder and harder to lie when they were queried and praised on their great voices and performance style. Next stop was New Zealand, where crowds of screaming fans almost provoked a riot at a small record store record signing appearance as the hysteria around the duo was bigger than ever before. When speaking about the tour, Fab said, We did a 107 city tour in 8 months. We had a tour bus. We were two sponges trying to absorb everything we could. Rob and Fab toured and partied nearly every night of a show. While on tour there was even a specific protocol for who would earn invites to their parties. They would do a gig and after the show they would bring a group of girls backstage. From here they would cut the numbers of the group down based on a screening process of what Rob and Fab were attracted to, and from here it would be sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Fab believed that because they were so fit and strong physically, that they were able to handle the vigorous touring schedule mixed in with intense partying involving cocaine and alcohol on the daily. They still even managed to fit in 6 hours sleep a night, as they had to be ready to perform in the next city the very next day. As time went on, the pressure continued to mount. Rob and Fab then requested to be the sole vocalist on Millie Vanilli's next album, which Frank Farian strongly objected to and became furious at their request. Due to Frank's rejection, they protested and purposely chose to skip an important video shoot, which made Frank very frustrated. According to Fab, Frank told them along the lines of Don't fuck with me. Rob and Fab decided if he wouldn't let them sing, that there was no way they would lip sync on the next album, and that they would quit if they needed to. They demanded more money for what they had been through, as there were so many individuals getting paid in the whole project, that Rob and Fab were normally left with the least amount, with most of the money coming in from touring. Rob and Fab decided to play the strategic game, and play Frank. They thought, if they chose not to comply with his demands, then eventually he would give in, as they were the face of the group, and made him his money. But this backfired. On the 14th of November, 1990, Frank Farian, who was quite wealthy, decided to pull back his power over Robin Fab, and decided to cut his losses, get back at Robin Fab, and have the last laugh by announcing to the public that he had now fired Robin Fab for their demands, and that this whole time they had been lip-syncing, and that their vocals were in fact done by other studio vocalists. This announcement led the media to swarm for Rob and Fab, with Rob stating to the LA Times that the rumours are true, and quote, I feel like a mosquito being squeezed. The last two years of our lives have been a total nightmare. We've had to lie to everybody. We are true singers, but that maniac Frank Farian would never allow us to express ourselves. Fab described the feeling as an instant relief when the truth was finally revealed, but this feeling didn't last, as he also felt disappointed to lose his record deal, and knew things were about to rapidly change for them, and they would face much scrutiny. 
With the truth being revealed to the public, just a week later, the National Academy of Recording Arts and Sciences called to revoke the Grammy awarded to Millie Vanilli for Best New Artist, becoming the first time in the Grammy's history an award has been taken back. To attempt to settle down angry fans and the hounding media, Rob and Fab held their own press conference for 100 journalists in LA to tell the truth, apologise to the fans, and to willingly hand back their Grammy award. Fab later revealed they of course had every intention of returning the award, and they didn't have any quarrels about that, as they didn't feel deserving anyway. During the conference, they referred to Frank as the devil, and to prove that they could actually sing and rap, they gave a quick demo for the journalists of what they really sounded like, and of course they were actually quite good. Phone calls, enormous rumours that you don't sing on the record. You have to lip sync in front of a half billion people. Right, if you don't lip sync right, it's like oil on a fire. So we were like, we were like, we, we freaked out. So we give this Grammy back now. Brad Howell and Sean Davis are the real singers, and I think they should get, they should get this Grammy. After this conference, both Rob and Fab thought they would have offers from labels lining up, but it wasn't the case at all, and no one wanted to touch them. The apology still wasn't enough for some fans, however, as some went as far as steamrolling CDs, merchandise, and burning them also. The fans' rejection of Rob and Fab was especially hard for them to deal with, and were upset no one would listen to their side of the story. A suicide prevention hotline was even set up for fans because some fans were so devastated, with some fans claiming they felt like they had been cheated on, and that instead of winning the Grammy, it should have been the Oscar. The pair were made into the face of a long-running joke, all media outlets were running with it, and they were all hounding them to tell their story and ask why they did it. At the time, it was the biggest story running on the news, and was running all over the world. Rob and Fab were made the scapegoats and were easy targets, while Frank, the original vocalists, and Arista Records were all hiding from the press. Fab felt like they were thrown to the wolves and had no one backing them up in support. They received loads of hate mail from angry fans and parents, and many requested refunds on albums and concert tickets. In what was a huge turn of events from the once-loved duo, even walking down the street now was a chore. As Fab described feeling paranoid and like everyone was laughing at him, even when they weren't. Fab even got to the point when he barely left his house for up to two to three years, only leaving for the essentials, such as groceries late at night, and covered up in layers of clothing, as his anxiety about running into the media or disappointed fans ran rampant. When Fab did have his run-ins, he would either skip shopping or have someone else get groceries for him to avoid the chance of more run-ins. Around 25 to 30 class action lawsuits relating to fraud were filed against Arista Records and Millie Vanilli themselves in the US alone. And even in one instance according to Fab, where a criminal charge against Rob and Fab was sat before a court in a small US county for the harm and distress they had caused to a particular fan. In August 1990, the case for albums and concert ticket sales to be refunded was passed and up to 10 million people were eligible for refunds of the purchase price and they even got to keep the album as well. Those that wished to seek a refund had until May 1992 to do so. Arista Records even made a statement that anyone who bought a Milli Vanilli album, single, or held onto their Milli Vanilli live show tickets, that they would receive credit to purchase an album from their catalogue. For a discounted price. On top of all of this, 
Millie Vanilli was sued over copyright infringement for the song All or Nothing, as it drew similarities to musician David Clayton Williams and his track Spinning Wheel. Arista Records was said to have lost around $25 million, but compared to what they had gained over the few years Millie Vanilli were active, they had made a huge profit anyway. Arista Records quickly dropped the pair from their label and had all of Millie Vanilli's platinum records pulled down off of their office walls. And after running the discount promotion, they even removed their album and singles from their catalogue, making the US version of the album titled Girl You Know It's True the largest selling album of all time to be removed from print. Fab explained to DJ Vlad that what money he did make from Millie Vanilli quickly dried up on paying his lawyers and court fees. In late 1990, there was also a similar scandal involving CC and the Music Factory, and the huge hit song Gonna Make You Sweat, Everybody Dance Now. After the high female vocals, featured on the track's chorus, were performed by reigning men's singer Martha Wash, who was previously one half of the Weather Girls. Instead of being credited for her vocals, Martha was left off the credits and left out of the music video due to the record company being worried about listeners switching off over her physical appearance, being a large woman, and instead replaced her with a glamorous model and acting vocalist Selma Davis. Marsha decided to file a lawsuit over this against RCA Records and Black Box for commercial appropriation. She of course won this, and this along with the Millie Vanilli scandal prompted a law to be brought in to stop this sort of fraud. Things only got worse for Rob and Fab when it was announced that Frank Farian was working on a new project called The Real Millie Vanilli. Featuring two new members being Gina Muhammad and Ray Horton, and the original studio vocalist John Davis, the Rocco sisters, and Brad Howe. While Brad, of course, originally voiced Rob's parts, while John voiced Fab. Their album titled The Moment of Truth was released in early 1991, and was actually set to be the next album that Rob and Fab would lip-sync on. They became popular in Germany, and Frank even took the real Millie Vanilli on the road, and they achieved some success with the track Keep On Running, they were rebranded as Try and Be, releasing the same album exclusively to the US, but it wasn't to be a hit. They soon faded away after a couple of small tours, and were deemed to be a flop compared to the star power Robin Fab brought to the table. As Robin Fab struggled, Frank Farian carried on with his career, and would go on to initiate similar Eurodance groups such as No Mercy, Le Click, Eruption, and the most successful being La Bouche, who scored a number one hit with Be My Lover. In 1991, Rob and Fab attempted to take the heat off themselves by starring in a parody-style commercial of themselves, lip-syncing to opera music for Carefree Sugarless Gum. At this time, everybody had been mocking the duo, and they wanted to show they could laugh it off, and that they didn't take themselves too seriously. However, the parodies and criticism just kept coming for Millie Vanilli. They starred as cartoon characters in the TV show The Adventures of Super Mario Brothers, and signed up for a number of acting roles, but failed to land a gig. How long will the flavour of carefree sugarless bubblegum last? Till these guys sing for themselves. Carefree sugarless bubblegum. The flavour lasts. Rob and Fab soon got their own apartments in LA as Fab was trying to get clean and he couldn't be around Rob's reckless party behaviour as it tempted him too much. By December 1991, Rob, age 27, was engaging heavily in taking a range of drugs and had enough of the scrutiny, humiliation and pain of the secret being exposed. 
and losing the fame and money that came with Millie Vanilli. He said that he felt hopeless. He was frustrated at himself for continually relapsing. He felt like his career was well and truly over. And Rob was also very upset about his foster family back home in Germany being harassed over the scandal and just couldn't take it no more. On a Friday night in the beginning of December, Rob and Fab, who was clean at the time, began partying. The party got so wild that Fab lost sight of where Rob was and couldn't find him. Fab believes that on that night, Rob had done way too many drugs and began overthinking everything and replaying the whole Millie Vanilli saga in his head. On that Saturday morning of December 1991, at 5am, Rob decided he was going to end his life and dangled himself from the night floor balcony of his hotel room at the Mondrian Hotel, located on the Sunset Strip. An upset Rob then reportedly called the LA Times and spoke to the operator and said, I've had enough. I didn't want to hurt anyone. I just wanted a little recognition. As Rob dangled from the balcony holding on just by his hands off the balcony rail, a number of police officers from West Hollywood's Sheriff's Department attended the scene where Sergeant James Mortensen managed to talk Rob into climbing back onto the balcony and managed to calm him down. The officers found a bottle of antidepressants, a suicide note, and said that he had also slit his wrists, but Rob's publicist instead said that they were just bruises, and Fab also denied these injuries. He was later taken for a psychiatric evaluation and received therapy and counselling for the ongoing issues he had been dealing with. Rob later stated it was the stupidest thing he had ever done, but it wouldn't be the last. While Rob and Fab struggled to fight for their image and their own personal lives, they recorded a track called Don't Give Up The Fight. That was exactly what they planned to do, and they kept fighting to have their real voices heard. They even did a video message for fans on TV, where they pleaded to give them a second chance. Both Rob and Fab then moved to LA, where they found a new manager who was also German, named Sandy Gallen, who helped them land a deal with her company, the Joss Entertainment Group. Through Sandy, they then landed a deal with a small record label called Taj. Finally, Rob and Fab were given the chance to sing for themselves on their very own album in 1993 called Rob and Fab that they helped produce and they even got to co-write a number of tracks as they entered a studio located in Nevada. The lead single called We Can Get It On was released to radio first and received some airplay before they had a huge opportunity to perform the track on Arsenio Hall. It was here where they performed for their lives and were proud of themselves that night as they got to sing and share their story. Viewers both at home and in the audience and special guests all spoke highly of Rob and Fab and were pleased to learn they could actually sing. Their voices sounded like the German and French Michael Jackson. They did a couple of gigs together in clubs and tried to promote the album but they lacked funding from Taj to make it much further than the club scene. Despite their great performances and the single being a catchy pop tune that was accompanied by a solid music video, it failed to chart. People still weren't over the lip-syncing scandal and the album turned out to be a flop, selling just 2,000 copies as the label severely lacked the sufficient funding for promotion and to print more copies, barely making it onto store shelves and due to the lack of funding, they only had enough copies to release to one country and that was the US, who didn't take to it. Making matters worse, the label also went bankrupt shortly after. The news of the failed album was bitterly disappointing, and the comeback dream was all but over. Fab finally made peace with having their voices heard, and for getting the chance to record their very own album. 
Rob, on the other hand, struggled the whole way through the recording process. He was still torn about how it all went down with Millie Vanilli, and his drug habits at the time became a lot worse to the point where he struggled to focus in the studio. He became almost bored with the recording process, and when performing, almost like he had checked out mentally, as he would venture to the local casinos and waste time instead of recording. His ego started to get in the way, and he was often in an aggressive and angry mood, which even he admitted would have made it hard to be around him. Fab, on the other hand, was focused and very professional according to their producer. Both Fab and Rob experienced severe bouts of depression. They both felt that they were in pain and wanted to forget the whirlwind they had helped create and were engaging heavily in drug use. But Fab was able to pull himself up, remain positive and get on with his life, realising if he didn't quit drugs that he would soon wind up dead. So he began to sober up and after two stints in rehab, he was doing a lot better mentally and was no longer touching the drugs at all. For Fab, music was his lifeline and was the only thing he could see himself doing in the future despite all the recent turmoil. He spent a lot of time writing songs and working out how to reinvent himself for the better. But for Rob, a rejection once again from fame, his fans and the huge fall from grace would be too much for him to handle as he spiralled out of control yet again. To Fab, Rob was like a brother and he tried to get him help, but Rob just wasn't ready to get himself better and continued to relapse. By 1996, Fab and Rob had drifted apart and were no longer speaking as much as they used to. Their brotherhood had gotten to the point where they didn't want to be around each other anymore as Rob and Fab once again decided to go their separate ways. Fab became a studio musician performing backing vocals and even tried his hand at public speaking. Fab started writing and singing his own music and performing around LA, but unfortunately for Rob, he became involved in crime and continued to struggle with his mental health. He attended rehab a total of 27 times over the years to no avail. Rob had already spent a brief stint in jail back in November 1990 when he was charged with sexual battery. He was released with a $10,000 bail and $485 of outstanding traffic violations. Often high on drugs, Rob got into a lot of trouble with the law and served three months in jail for assault, attempted robbery and vandalism and a further six months in a California rehab facility. The story goes that Rob broke into a man's car in the Hollywood Hills, slept in the car for the night and was woken up to the owner standing there with an aluminium baseball bat. A domestic broke out as Rob allegedly threatened to kill the man and was then clubbed to the ground by the car owner with the baseball bat. In another instance, Rob broke into an apartment in Whitley Avenue, but was quickly discovered by the man residing there. He then asked Rob to leave before Rob decided to hit the man in the head with the metal base of a lamp several times. He also committed a number of other lesser crimes as Rob had seemingly lost all self-control. He described himself at this time as a very angry person and that he was still bitter about the end of Millie Vanilli. Bailing Rob out of jail was none other than Frank Farian, the manager that helped destroy his life and career. In November 1997, with Rob struggling to get better, he decided to head home to Germany to work with Frank. Rob's sister Carmen was also still in Germany and was a great support to him all through his life and attempted to get him back on his feet. Fab was hopeful Rob would come back a better man after doing some time in jail and despite Rob being thankful to Frank, Fab was very wary about what Frank really wanted from Rob, and all while he was vulnerable and desperate to fill that void and redeem himself and his career. 
Frank asked Rob if he would like to return to the studio to record a comeback album for Millie Vanilli, with plans to also lure in Fab Morvan, if he could convince him as well. Fab had not really spoken to Frank since he was fired, and was not keen on working with him again, and Fab was also hardly communicating with Rob at this stage, as their relationship had soured. In order to avoid speaking to Frank directly, Fab had his manager Kim Marlowe deal with him, with plans laid out for Millie Vanilli's comeback album, and was called back and in attack. With Fab getting the impression, it was all just going to be exactly the same thing over again, rehashed and replayed, and an attempt by Frank to make some more money off of the pair. A vulnerable Rob, who also felt he needed the money, was down for the album, but Fab was not going to give in so easily. The album was to be recorded back in Germany, and Fab wasn't interested in returning there, as he was happy in LA. While it was rumoured that they had recorded their own vocals for the album, Fab made the decision to distance himself from the comeback album, leaving just Rob as the only member on board. Rob was back and forth between rehab and the recording studio during the album's production, was set to travel to India for further rehab treatment down the track. Frank then decided to send Rob on a promo tour for the potential new album and continued to attempt to get Fab to join. But on the night before the first gig was booked, Tragedy struck, and the album would never be released. Sadly, on the 3rd of April, 1998, at the age of 32, Rob Politis was found dead of a suspected accidental alcohol and prescription drug overdose in his hotel room in Friedrichsdorf, near Frankfurt in Germany. The mix of drugs and the alcohol causing a heart attack. The first on the scene to find Rob was Frank Farian. It was ruled that Rob had been dead for 18 hours, and was never confirmed whether it was an accident or a suicide attempt. Fab was devastated to lose his brother, and was sad that the two never got to reconcile. Rob and Fab had been through so much together, and when Fab first heard the news, he described it as shocking, but at the same time he knew it could potentially happen one day. He described the moment to DJ Vlad, saying that his ears began to ring when he heard the news, and that it was intense. To this day, Fab believes Rob's death still needs a little more investigating, as he thought Rob was starting to get better and was booked into a great rehab clinic in India. Fab leans more to it being an accidental overdose, but that perhaps Rob thought he would attempt to get high one last time before going away to rehab in India, and that the mix of prescription drugs, alcohol, and perhaps another illicit substance, it reacted and caused a heart attack, and was just simply too much. A funeral was then held for Rob, who was buried in Munich's Waldfriedhof Cemetery in Bavaria, Germany, the place where he spent much of his childhood and teenage years. After the death of Rob, Fab landed a job as a DJ and host on popular LA radio station KISS FM with his own radio show called Fabrice's Fabulous Flashbacks. He found this was a good way to connect with genuine fans of his who still respected him and that it was also a good way to change people's minds about him and Millie Vanilli. Through Kiss FM in 1999, Fab got the chance to perform at their sold-out show at the Wango Tango Festival in front of 50,000 people at Dodger Stadium in LA. Fab continued performing, writing and singing for himself and in 2002 he entered the studio to record his very own solo album called Love Revolution which was released in 2003, and incorporates some of his favourite genres such as rock and roll, soul, reggae, and rhythm and blues. The album included 12 tracks, all of which he wrote himself, sang, and produced. One of the tracks titled It's Your Life was written by Fab as a tribute to Rob. 
Fab toured the album and continued doing what he loved, which is performing live music. In 2007, Universal Pictures announced it was planning on developing a film based on the story of Millie Vanilli, with Fab as a consultant for accuracy, and the directors were all set to begin filming. But it was cancelled, and was to be rewritten by a different director and writer in 2011. But still to this day, a film hasn't been produced, despite Fab hinting at one most recently. From 2012 to 2015, Fab joined projects called Fabulous Addiction and Night Air, releasing a few tracks and had apparently gone into the studio to collaborate with John Davis, who was the studio vocalist and rapper that did Fab's parts back in Millie Vanilli's prime. Fab said together they had worked on an album called Face Meets Voice, but this has not yet been released and was instead used as a slogan for their tour together. In 2014, the voices behind Millie Vanilli, including the Rocco sisters, who provided backing vocals, along with Robin Fab's shadow vocalists Charles Shaw, John Davis, and Brad Howe, all made appearances on Oprah Winfrey's Where Are They Now? Brad revealed that he was happy to be in the background and wasn't interested in being a frontman, as he was well into his 40s by that stage, and had already had his fair share of being up there on stage in a range of bands. John spoke fondly of Rob and Fab and didn't seem to hold any angst towards them for being the frontmen. Charles, however, admitted to having a problem with it. He originally thought he was going to sing and be on stage, but was told by Frank that it wouldn't be the case. Frank, of course, attempted to keep Charles quiet, and Charles said it was hard for him to watch others be adored when he was the vocalist. The Rocco sisters spoke about the confidentiality of the project, how they weren't allowed to interact with Rob and Fab, and how Frank was someone they didn't want to mess with. They were all saddened, however, by Rob's death, claiming he went too soon. From 2017, John Davis and Fab have since been touring together, travelling across Europe, performing Millie Vanilli's greatest hits, and he still believes a movie based on their story is on its way. Today at the age of 54, Fab Morvan has a wife and two children. He still has his long black braided hair and can still be found performing his own music around LA, all the way to Amsterdam, where he DJs and lives back and forth between the two cities. Fab has taken up painting, writing, fashion, and occasional modeling. He has managed to stay incredibly fit for his age, looking like he hasn't aged one bit. He is currently working on writing his own book and has well and truly come to terms with Frank Farian and the scandal that occurred around 30 years ago, despite still not talking to Frank as he believes he just had to let go of the anger he felt for him to move on with his own life. Fab is happy that people are finally starting to listen to their side of the story and now hopes to spread messages through his music of peace, love and is today extremely humble, quiet and down to earth. Rob today would have been 55 years old if he was able to pull himself out of his slump. But many believe the day The Secret came out was the day that Rob's life changed and there was no turning back. While Rob and Fab never had the chance to reveal their true voices as members of Millie Vanilli, without their intense high-energy performances, dancing ability, their braided hair and sex appeal, Millie Vanilli would never have reached the same heights without them. Today the criticism, while still evident, has substantially declined over the years and Fab is now able to be recognised and respected instead of hated. While they were part of a master plan of trickery that had the world fooled, they were just young impressionable men from foreign countries looking to make a name for themselves in the American music industry and didn't know exactly what they were stepping into and how far it would take them. 
Had Rob and Fab been given the chance to explain themselves sooner before the Grammys, then perhaps the aftermath of the announcement would have saved Rob from spiralling down a dark path. It was never easy for Rob to overcome all of these obstacles he faced during his lifetime, both as a child and as an adult, but the Millie Vanilli experience was the final straw that would ultimately be his downfall in the end. Rob and Fab were simply made scapegoats, but really, they were the victims. Thankfully, Fab is still here today to tell both of their stories. He is attempting to break down the stigma of what occurred by telling the true story that was never told by their point of view, with many artists ranging from the CC Music Factory, Sean Paul, Britney Spears, Ashley Simpson, Whitney Houston and Beyonce lip-syncing and using auto-tune today. Perhaps it's time for the pressure to ease on Millie Vanilli and to stop and think, what would you have done in their shoes? Thank you all so much for joining me for the story of Robin Fab, aka Millie Vanilli. Don't forget to check out our other episodes from Season 1 and 2, and if you're new to the podcast, be sure to join us next week for another amazing episode, which will be revealed on our social media pages during the week. For more information regarding this episode, including weekly updates and more, head to our Facebook page at Lyrics of Their Life Podcast or our website at lyricsoftheirlife.com. If you really enjoy the podcast and would like to give back for the hard work that goes into it, it would be greatly appreciated if you could leave a review on iTunes, let your friends know about what they've been missing out on, and click the free subscribe button to the podcast so you can receive new episodes direct to you when they become available. If you would like to support the podcast financially, then feel free to head to Patreon, where you can pledge your support for as little as $1 a month. Every bit of support is greatly appreciated, and it means I can continue bringing you more great episodes in the future. Once again, thank you all for listening. I'm your host, Adam Hampton, and this is Lyrics of Their Life.